We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn. This is an easy one to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can find Genesis chapter 1 in our Pew Bible on page 1. doesn't matter which version of the Bible you're looking at. Genesis chapter 1 should be on page 1. Now, we are launching CPC Kids. We started last Sunday, and at this time I'd like to dismiss uh, David and the CPC Kids. Um, I believe this morning it's Elliot. And just before you leave, just real quickly, I heard that John Calvin, his church, only had one child, and they created this children's program when he was very small, and he went on to be a great father of the Reformation. So I'm not putting any pressure on you and Madeline, but, but we're doing a lot here, and we're trusting God to do big things in Elliot. Um, CPC kids, they're going to be dismissed. Uh, they're actually going through the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, and we are going to be doing the same thing, going through the story of the Bible. And if you don't have a Jesus Storybook Bible, you can purchase one. I don't know if we have any copies this morning or not, uh, but you can purchase one after the service and follow along with us. We won't specifically read the story each and every week like the children will do, but the corresponding sermon passage will be one of the passages addressed during the CPC Kids Lesson. And so we're right at the very beginning of the story. We're in the book of Genesis. Now, last week we looked at Psalm 19, and we kind of it was an introductory, set-the-stage type of sermon in which we talked about how God reveals himself. And we said that God reveals himself in kind of two different ways. There's general revelation, and that's available to every single man, woman, boy, and girl throughout history, in which God shows his power and his creativity in the world that we see and interact with around us. But that in special revelation, we call the Bible, the personality, the nature, and the very character of God, the plan of God's salvation for his people, is revealed to us through Scripture. So that's why we want to be a people where we feature the preaching and the teaching of God's word as a central part of everything we do. Now here in the past, we at CPC have talked about what is the story of the Bible. And we've said that you can break the amazing story of the Bible down into four movements or to four parts or four acts. And they would be described in this way. It's easy to remember. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So the whole story of the Bible, no matter where you're at, will fall in one of those four movements. Creation, the fall, redemption, and then the restoration. Now, creation. Now, if you were to look in the actual Hebrew text, there's one word that kind of sums up Genesis 1 and 2, and it's the word shalom, in which you and I translate peace. Now, all of creation was full of this idea of shalom. And what that means is it's not just the absence of conflict. That's what we kind of say, peace in the Middle East. We just think of, we just there and put their guns down and bombs down and just stop fighting. It's the absence of conflict. But shalom in Genesis 1 and 2 is when all of creation is working exactly the way God intended for it to. There's no influence of sin. Human beings were flourishing. They lived in joy in the presence of God. They loved Him. They loved one another. And they served God. But what we see is that sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve reject God's rule over them. We refer to this as the fall. When they rebelled against God, 
They represented all of humanity. They fall, we fell with them. Their actions, their disobedience affect every single one of us. They made a fateful decision and it started to tear all of creation apart. We have, you and I, continued that exact same process. The attitudes, the actions, the words that we speak declared ourselves to be the enemies of God. Their rebellion, our rebellion, has resulted in the physical destruction, decay, death that we see and experience every single day. But that's not the end of the story. There's the redemption movement to the story in which God, who is a faithful God, who is a gracious and merciful God, rather than leaving us under the judgment of sin and experiencing his wrath, determined that he would take evil and turn it to good, that he would save his covenant people. And so he sets forth in Genesis chapter 3 this plan of salvation. And we see the promise of Jesus all the way back in the very beginning of the story. In which God himself and the person of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, would come in human flesh and in his body go to the cross to receive the penalty of your sin and my sin. And the grand narrative of scripture focuses on the coming, the teaching, the life, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And the story ends finally, not just with redemption, but with the restoration of all things. Everything that was lost in the fall, God is going to make new. Everything that God creates in the beginning that was destroyed by our rebellion will be recreated at some point in the future. It will be an age of righteousness and peace and an age in which you and I live in the presence of God. So this morning, what we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 1 is briefly the first act of creation. Now, all cultures have creation stories, stories that answer those fundamental questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? What is it that we're supposed to do with our life? The Babylonian story, Enuma Elish, is a Babylonian epic poem. It's a creation story which talks about the beginning of the cosmos, the birth of the gods and the rise of the dominance of the god Marduk and the ultimate creation of humanity. The Norse account, Bob, they have a creation account of Odin and his brothers who create Middle Earth, which is the realm of human beings, from the body of a giant, I guess it would be Yamir, that they kill. And so they take from his flesh and from his bones and they make the mountains that we see. They, um, you know, take his blood and they make the waters of the earth, the seas, the ocean. From his brain, they make the clouds in the sky. Now, our culture has creation stories as well. Our culture has decided that the creation story that we're going to tell, though, is conveniently enough a godless creation account. Stories like the Big Bang or multi-universes where the forces of random chance over periods of extended time produce life as you and I know it. The question isn't whether or not you're going to believe a creation story. Every single one of us is living In a creation story, the question is, which creation story will you submit yourself to? Every single one of the creation stories require faith or belief in someone or something. Every single human being you know is operating out of this orientation. They believe the universe was created somehow or by someone. And the implications of your creation story are significant. That's why we want to look at the biblical account of creation. So if you would please stand with me as we read Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, this account of creation, the biblical account of creation, is recorded for us in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Now, Genesis is the first book of our Bible. It's the first book of the Hebrew Bible. It was written by Moses about 3,500 years ago. And you can divide Genesis kind of into two chapters. There's the first section, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And then you have the second, which is chapters 12 through 50. Now, chapter 1 through 11 deals with the whole of early human history. Chapters 12 through 50 focus specifically on what we call the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and his sojourn down into Egypt. Now, the word Genesis just simply means origin or beginning. It's the story of how things come to be. And it lays the groundwork not only for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but for the whole of Scripture. And so we have to have a proper understanding of Genesis in order for us to understand the whole of the Bible. We see in Genesis, this is where the story of God's redemption will ultimately begin. A story that will continue all the way through the creation of this nation, God's covenant people we refer to as Israel, all the way through the person of Jesus to the, the point in history where we're living in, the creation of the church, all the way to the end of time. God has been in the past, as we saw in the book of Deuteronomy, faithful. God is in the present right now faithful, and God will continue to be through all eternity a faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So we're going to go through Genesis really, really, really quickly. And what you'll see is that the book of Genesis is not exhaustive. It's a selective telling of the story of God's work in the world by Moses. It covers about 2,000 years of human history. It really covers as much history in the book of Genesis as covered in the entire rest of the Bible. From Genesis chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, you're going to cover 1,700 years in just a few chapters. So Moses is not considering every single question that you have or that I have. But he's telling us the things that we need to know. God, in his wisdom, inspired Moses to write the things that he considered essential for his people to have in order that we might serve and follow him in obedience. Genesis is also not written in a vacuum, but it's written specifically to the covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, who had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years and who have now been set free. They were delivered by the hand of God and they were being taken to the promised land that they might serve and worship him. So Genesis 1 teaches us that God created our universe and then he shapes and fashions it into a a world that's formless into a world that has order. From emptiness into fruitfulness. From nothingness to blessedness. So that there would be this place that was perfectly designed as a habitat for human beings to live and to grow and to flourish. We see from the refrain of Genesis 1 as you read through that everything that God does in the creation account is declared good. So we see two things in this short little passage. One, that God is and that God creates. And so you could summarize Genesis 1 like this. That God is the creator and he created all things. So what does it mean that God is? Well, notice how Genesis 1 begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible offers forth as the opening words a declaration, an announcement, a statement. It's not a question. It's not an argument. It's not a philosophical 
uh, you know, treaty. There's no um, uh, attempt by Moses to explain the existence of this God. No apologetics that he engages in in order to try to convince the skeptic or the unbeliever. He just simply begins with this powerful declaration, there is a God and everything he created. Consider four simple words. In the beginning, God. That's the central truth of the universe. Now, you can be right and understand a lot of things about how planets and suns and stars and moons rotate and circle. But if you miss this essential truth, you'll be wrong in all the places where it matters most. And that's an easy thing to do. Why? Because we are so self-absorbed. We are so self-centered that we think our lives and everything around us is really all about us. So we assume and we operate or we live out of this premise that the universe really began when we began. And there wasn't really anything important that happened before, but the real important stuff happened when we showed up on the scene. And the story, capital S story, is really all about us. David kind of alluded to that as he's concerned about what he needs to do. What he's creating. No, this is not your story. The entire universe is God's story. And it's a huge story. It's a story so big that encompasses every single man, woman, boy, and child who has and who will ever live on the face of this planet. It's a story so big that includes all of creation. Every corner of the known and unknown universe is included in this story. Every planet, star, sun, moon incorporates all. All of those things. It's so vast. It's so big. And yet we are a part of it. And so it's not an accident that Moses begins the book of Genesis the way he does. With God as the featured character. He dominates this chapter in every single way. The name of God appears I think 35 times in 35 verses. So over and over Moses is just trying to say. I know you think it's all about you. But God is really at the center of everything. The universe exists because he spoke it into existence. So there's some things that we see. One, God is eternal. The Old Testament begins with, in the beginning, God was there. So what you and I think of the beginning, God was already there. He is the self-existent, eternal God. The triune God has always existed. He, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has always been. He is the ultimate reality. There has never been a time, even to say that there has never been a time, doesn't even fully encapsulate what it means that God is eternal. Because he exists outside of time. But there was never a time when there was not God. He does not owe the fact that he exists to anyone or anything. And Moses knows this. And so that's why he begins Genesis 1 in the beginning. God is personal. This is not the force like we see in Star Wars. But God is a person to be known. To be served, to be loved, to be related to. The word here for the, the, when you see God translated in your English text is Elohim. It means the creator God. It's the personal God who does the kinds of things that you and I do. He speaks, he sees, he plans, he evaluates, he judges. What's interesting is that the word Elohim is plural in this text. In the very first sentence of the Bible, we see that God is an eternally triune God. He lets us know that he exists in the multitude of personalities, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as he exists singularly as the Godhead. Later in chapter 1, verse 26, 
we see this emphasized again in which we see we read, let us make man in our own image. But then in the very next verse, we sing the singularity of the Godhead. God created man in his own image. It goes back and forth, singular to plural. Why? Because our God, one God, exists as three distinct persons. And they're all present here in the creation account. We see the Holy Spirit who hovers over the darkness, who provides for creation. God creates by speaking by the power of his word. We know from the New Testament that the word of God is Jesus and that through him and in him all things are held together. God is eternal. God is personal, but God is good. Everything that God does is perfect. There's this beautiful refrain that gets repeated over and over. And God saw that it was good. God is powerful. We see in his creative acts that he does, by the power of his word, how much power and majesty he has. He doesn't labor or toil. He doesn't strain or work at it, but he speaks it into existence. It's by his word that the worlds that you and I see and know come into existence. God is self-revealed, and this is most important as you consider the authority of the scriptures. In the book of Genesis, God reveals to us what he wants us to know. We don't get to make God up as we go along, but he shows us what it is that we're to believe about him. How do we know this? Well, we know this because we have this creation account. The only way we have this creation account is if God chose to reveal it to Moses so that he could record it for God's people. No one else was there. Moses wasn't there. Richard Dawkins wasn't there. But God revealed it to Moses. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11 we read that it's by faith that we know how the world was made. And the only reason why that Moses knows is because God inspired him through the Holy Spirit to reveal these truths. He wrote them down so that we would have them as the people of God. So we see in this passage that God is. But we also see that God creates. Now there are two primary words used in this passage and it goes from one to the other, but you don't see it in your English translation. Two words that are used for the idea of creating or making something in Genesis chapter 1. But they mean two distinct and different kinds of things. And you have to understand what Moses is saying to us in Genesis chapter 1. The first Hebrew word is bara, and this is where God makes things out of nothing. Okay? I think it's John Orberg tells the story of a scientist who, confident of his abilities, decided to challenge God. He said, listen, you know, God, we've gotten really good with all of our technologies. We can clone people. We can create organs from stem cells. We have 3D printers to print, ar print arms and legs. We can do all sorts of things. So we really don't need you to create human beings anymore. God said, oh, you don't need me to make people. All right, well, let's just have a people-making competition. And so the scientist said, sure, let's do it. When do you want to do it? So God says, all right, let's meet back here in a week. Scientist shows up. He reaches down, he scoops up a handful of dirt. God says, oh no, you go get your own dirt. Okay, see that's what God does, is he creates out of nothing. He doesn't take something and then convert that into something different. But in the beginning, he creates out of nothing. He speaks it into existence. And then what we see as we shift is that God takes the things that he's spoken into existence and he begins to shape and fashion them so that human beings can live and flourish. That's the second Hebrew word, asat. He's preparing creation that he spoke into existence for you and for me. God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he begins to manipulate them in such a way so that people 
could live and flourish. When it says the heavens and the earth, that's just a figure of speech. You know what that means. We say, oh, I searched high and low and, um, you know, I was up all night and day. I mean, we're not literally mean those words, but those two terms serve to function as the whole. So when it says heavens and earth, it means everything God created. And then he begins to shape and bring order out of chaos. So through the rest of Genesis 1, God has spoken all the heavens and the earth existence. And now he's going to reshape and fashion them. He's going to get it ready for human beings. And this is important. One astrophysicist says there are 41 billion planets and only one has met all 10 habitable zone conditions. Think about that. 41 billion planets that we're aware of. There's probably more out there. We're just not aware of them. 41 billion planets. There's only one single planet that's habitable for human beings. He Ross says that astronomy reveals the truth and the glory of a transcendent God. And this transcendent God speaks 41 billion planets into existence and then he starts shaping and fashioning one for you and for me. The same way new parents get the nursery ready for their first child to come home, he's getting this planet, this specific place, the Garden of Eden, ready for Adam and Eve, our first parents. And so what we see in the nature of God is that he brings order out of chaos. He takes all that was without form, all that was empty, and he gives it form and shape and structure, and substance. The movement, if you read through Genesis chapter 1, is from that. From unformed to formed. From chaos to order. From empty to full. And often he does it in binaries. Light, dark, night, day, male, female. He speaks things into an orderly pattern. He separates them. The light from the darkness, the sky from the sea, the land from the sea. He separates the planet, I mean the animals, according to their kind, so that what results is a world that operates according to his wisdom. Now, how did the shaping of creation take place? Well, we read that the Spirit of God was moving. He was hovering over the surface of the waters. It's the Spirit that prepares the world for the human race. This is the first reference to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. It happens right there at the beginning, but it shows us and sets the precedent for what he always does. As he brings forth the conditions for life, he gives form and direction to us as God's people. Everything in this passage is moving towards the creation of Adam and Eve. In six days of creation, they're divided into two groups. The first three days of creation, God creates the realms for the, for the inhabitants of the earth. And on days four through six, he puts the inhabitants into those realms. And finally, it reaches the ultimate climax on the sixth day when we see humanity created in the image of God. He creates Adam and Eve in his own image. What does that mean to be created in the image of God? It means two things. Primarily two things. It means other things, but primarily two things. There's a relationship with God and there's a responsibility to God. We were created to know God, to love God, to live with God, to serve God. A number of years ago, we were at Ann Daniel's house having dinner. And there was a gentleman there and... We got to talk and whatever I say, I'm a pastor. Interesting conversations always follow. And he went on to talk about how he didn't believe. And then he said this. Why, if there's a God that exists, would he create a world in which the first requirement would be that you, by faith, believe that he exists? Ever heard anybody say something like that? 
Like if God is real, then why do we have to in faith believe that he's real and out there? Why does he just like make it so clear to everybody? And I just as politely as I could responded to him. That was not the case when God created the world. It did not require faith to believe that God exists. But Adam and Eve lived and saw and walked in the garden with God himself. Because sin entered the world, we were disconnected from the source of life. We were driven out of the garden to live in a world where sin is shot through everything, including us. Now that's the case. We were created to be in a relationship with God, but we also have a responsibility. Everything that God created was good. It was God's intention to leave it that way, but it wasn't completely and fully formed. There, were, there was work to be done by Adam and Eve. That's why he gives them the command in, chapter, in verse 28, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, the sea, the birds, the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. Sometimes people talk about Adam and Eve served as the vice regents of God. That means they were serving in his place, continuing the work that he had begun. Adam and Eve do two things in this responsibility. They tend to the garden and they begin to name and classify the animals. The same thing that God was doing. Bringing order and structure to, out of chaos. Now when I think of the Garden of Eden... A good way for you to think of it is not like the community garden that's on 224 just across from the Canyon Ski Resort. Or the garden that you might have grown up with in your backyard. I don't care how big the garden is. That's not what you should imagine. I think the Garden of Eden was much more like Zion National Park. I think it was awe-inspiring. It was, it was incredible. Like you didn't just wake up and be like, eh, yeah, okay. No, every single day you marveled at the majesty and the power of God. And they had this job. They had this work to do, to tend to it, to have dominion over the animals. So what we see in Genesis 1 is that there's a creator and then there's all of creation. There's a unique distinction. God is the creator who speaks everything out of nothing, then brings order and form and function into it. That means something. That means he's sovereign. It means he's in control. Over you, over me, over every single thing in this universe. God is absolutely sovereign. The Bible makes that clear from Genesis all the way through to the book, end of the book of Revelation. So here's the application. How many of you would like to have some questions answered? Like exactly how did God create everything? How old is the earth? Is it 6,000, 10,000, 4.5 billion years? Is it an old, a young earth? What happened to the dinosaurs? How many of you have questions about that? Questions that you've heard people ask because they've committed themselves to the theory of evolution. Well, here's the thing that Genesis 1 clearly teaches us. God doesn't really care about your questions or mine. He doesn't owe you an answer and he doesn't owe me an answer. He's God. You're not. He's sovereign. I'm not. I don't want to be harsh and I'm not trying to... Trying to you know, be flippant, but that's just a simple fact. And if you don't get that right, then you're going to have all kinds of problems with everything else that's going to be revealed in the Scripture. I think Francis Chan, he says it this way. He says, you can take a spiritual temperature like this. If the sovereignty of God is sweet to you and you readily submit to God's ultimate authority, then that's a sign of God's grace and spiritual maturity in your life. He said, but if you find the ultimate sovereignty of God offensive and the idea of him having authority over you and every other thing in the universe, 
that he can do with you whatever he pleases, if that's offensive to you, then that's the mark of a hard heart and a stiff neck. And you need to repent. See, Genesis 1 is not about you and me and the questions that we bring to the text. Genesis 1 is about God and his glory. Revealing to us what we need to know that we can be properly related to him as the covenant people of God. And what does that mean? It means we respond with submission, with obedience, with love, with delight, with worship, and with wonder at what God has done in the world and the universe around us. Let's pray.